The Athletic. The Champions League is back and to be fair so is the Europa League Man United fans which means there's no better time to sign up for all the unrivaled coverage at The Athletic. Right now new subscribers can get a half price annual subscription that works out less than £1 a week for an entire year. All you have to do is head to theathletic.com slash totally. But hurry, you've only got until the 25th of February. That's theathletic.com slash totally. Totally Football Show. Today, Premier League. Gundogan helps City do one. Seven points clear after spanking Spurs. Meanwhile, Liverpool lose at Leicester. Taxi for Alisson? Or will he just catch a cab back? We take stock of all the latest action with a major upset for Fulham at Goodison, a Bumiyan back and banging against Leeds and Saints blowing theirs. Plus, we look ahead to the return of European competition, Liverpool, Leipzig and more. It's all coming up in this Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Yo, Pierre, you want to come out here? Hello everybody, it's Monday the 15th of February, good to have you on board with us. We'll play that track for Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, who's very much back with a hat-trick Sunday for Arsenal. On the show today we've got Daniel Storey of the Football 365 and the Eye. Hello Daniel. Hi James. Also with us Charlie Eccleshare of The Athletic. Hi James. Hello Charlie. And Carl Anker as well. Hi Carl. Ahoy hoy. Indeed. All well, everybody? Did you have a good weekend? Yes, thank you very much. It was nice. If we are going to have football kind of spread across the weekend as it feels we have to now, I like it that they're all at a different time. You do like that? Yeah, well, I mean, I don't like it as it is, but if it is going to be as it is, I'd rather be able to feast on every game. Right. uh, Which you can do this weekend, the two on Monday. Which did you find the most delicious morsel this weekend, Daniel? Uh, well, I, I enjoyed the the big games on Saturday, but I was talking with Charlie before the show and I really liked Fulham against Everton on mm. Sunday night. I didn't go into that one with as many expectations, maybe as Everton fans didn't either, but yeah, it was really good. Excellent. What, what about you, Charlie? What would you say was your goal of the weekend? Goal of the weekend, I would probably say the Loughton volley. Um, really? Yeah, I found that such a satisfying finish and had the really nice build-up to go with it. Um, so, yeah, that, that just about gets my vote. Wow, the, the Ings one was pretty special as well. And then, of, of course, that magnificent Firmino assist for Salas in the ill-fated uh, clash for Liverpool at King Power. Carl, what about you? Uh, my goal of the weekend was probably Pedro Neto's goal against oh, yeah. Southampton. Yeah, yeah. A really nice, uh, now you see it, now you don't, and now it's in the back of the net. One, two, three. Uh, yeah, that was uh, that was one of those fun goals that you can see happen quite a few times at goals and then being the fan of being like, oh no, how did that happen? Yeah, yeah astonishingly quick feet uh, the boy has. What about which, which keeper had the biggest mare, would you say, uh, this weekend? Candidates include... Munier, Loris, Allison. I mean, Loris had maybe the cumulative, um, you know, may- maybe not one sort of absolute howler on the level of Allison's, but uh, I think just the fact that he looked shaky for certainly two of the goals and maybe even a little bit the third, but certainly those first two was was pretty hard to watch. Mm. Yeah, indeed so. Indeed so. Well, it was a weekend that saw the title race for many people are wrapped up, but perhaps a little bit of chink of light in that relegation doorway, not quite as slammed shut as we, we thought it might have been after Fulham's victory Sunday night. But anyway, let's check out the scores. Saturday, Leicester officially ending Liverpool's title defence with a final 15 minutes that saw them sweep from 1-0 down to 3-1 winners. Burnley turned on the goals with a 3-0 win at the increasingly fragile Crystal Palace. Same score for Man City at home to Spurs in their 16th victory in a row in all competitions, while Saturday night Martinez was the star uh, for Villa in a goalless draw at Brighton. Sunday, Consistency's Southampton lost their sixth league game in a row, 2-1 to Wolves, who they did beat in the Cup on Thursday. West Brom added Man United to their collection of unlikely draws, in with neighbours Man City and Liverpool. Arsenal were 4-2 winners over Leeds, and Fulham produced... Probably the surprise of the round with their 2-0 victory away at Everton. Their first victory at Goodison since the mid-70s. Wow. It leaves the Cottagers 
seven points from safety, while Man City at the other end are now seven points clear of Man United and Leicester with a game in hand. Liverpool now lie fourth, one of six sides battling over the last Champions League spot. Ooh, let's start with Sunday's thrills and spills. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Spotted a gap. Lookman back to Aina. Nice football from Fulham. And tucked in by Josh Madger. His first start for the club and his first goal for the club. All right. Sunday night, Everton Fulham. Go on then, Daniel. Biggest shock of the week. Right up there with Dermot Gallagher's real accent. <laughs> uh, yeah, although I, I have had a sneak preview of that real accent in the uh, green room at Stockley Park with POP. Mm. And yeah, it's quite it's quite intimidating when he's shouting about angrily about decisions that I disagreed with and he agreed with. But, he's a nice um, man though, isn't he? Yeah, he's lovely, yeah. to be fair. Yeah, Fulham, were, Fulham seems to be one of these teams that play well whenever I watch them and seem to play well for some part of every match but ultimately I mean they're very much like Brighton in that they had a clinical finisher they'd be fine um, but they just don't defend quite as well or haven't defended quite as well as Brighton and therefore they're in the relegation zone rather than out of it but they did everything well here Everton were wretched but Fulham were really really good Do do, do Everton have a bit of an excuse because they were involved in that extraordinary match midweek against Spurs? Not really, I don't think. They they seem to produce these performances, particularly at Goodison, reasonably regularly. They they were missing Dominic Calvert-Lewin, which is obviously a massive focal point up front. And and when they went more direct, it was pretty obvious that they missed him. But they didn't deserve anything else. Um, because, yeah, they just seem to play at kind of half pace through midfield, which is... Really, really. I mean, and Fulham played at double speed and that was the game, really. Fulham kind of zipping around Everton while they kind of stars went round their head wondering what had happened. I mean, to be honest, Everton were quite lucky, I thought, to beat Spurs midweek. They they had some pretty shaky moments defensively and, I mean, obviously conceded four and could uh, quite feasibly have conceded more. But yeah, I mean, I completely agree with Daniel. As he said, we were speaking before about Fulham and and they, they, when they came to Spurs a few weeks ago, I was so impressed with how they move the ball and they seem to have so many kind of skillful, exciting players. And on that day, that was a, a fairly typical one for them in that they got a point, but they actually could have nicked it, but they just didn't really have the conviction. And I did fear for them after that first half where it, it looked like being that same kind of story where they, they played well, but didn't take the chances. So it was really nice to see them actually do that in the second half because they really deserved it. And I think everyone... Was quite pleased, you know, from a neutral perspective, just because it keeps that relegation fight alive with the title race seemingly over. You know, it, it's it's nice to have that. And you know, we spoke about it a couple of weeks ago that for all this being the kind of weirdest, most exciting, in some ways zany season, it would have been a shame for all of that to peter out. So hopefully, Fulham can build on this. Yeah, Carl, what do you think? Uh, Daniel was lamenting Fulham's lack of a clinical finisher in Josh Marger, a Sunderland's Josh Marger. Have they found him? It looks like it. Uh, it's been a very good weekend for uh, Premier League watchers of a Nigerian persuasion. Um, mm. So Josh Marger, as well as uh, Lookman, uh, as were really, really good against Everton. Good performances from Wilfred and Didi against Liverpool. Ajay, even at um, West Bromwich Album. Uh, the list goes on. Uh, they're going to be very good at the World Cup. Excellent. Ouch. That hurts me as a Ghanaian person to say. Uh, yeah, Fulham, yeah, Fulham, Daniel's right. Much like Brighton, Fulham were a good goal scorer away from making the jump and it looks as if Josh Marge offers them a, a way to be a little bit more direct a way to be uh, the need to be perfect in their build up has dropped off because they have a more clinical striker up front and you saw that on Sunday well they are seven points behind Newcastle who have uh, yet to play uh, this round they're at Chelsea on Monday probably not many people give them too much hope in that game but then <laughs> hey tell that to Papi Cisse yeah. Cisse. Oh, that is sensational. The, the, the other the thing to mention is that um, uh, there's a long way left yet, but Fulham hosts Newcastle on the final day. Um, so if it's as long as it's within two points or three in goal difference, a fi- that kind of final day shootout is, if the title race is going to be done and dusted by them, would be quite a nice thing to have. Wow. And also, I mean, Callum Wilson being out is potentially pretty major for Newcastle I mean he's been so crucial to you know to any good performances they've had so that's uh could make that could make that interesting 
Yeah, absolutely. As for Everton, who are very much one of those six teams clustered within about four points of each other, battling for the, the final Champions League spot, they've got Man City midweek in one of their games that they, they have to make up. And then next weekend, the derby. Crikey. Elsewhere on Sunday, Man United were at the Hawthorns, which given that it is 56 metres above sea level, uh, means that this was literally the high point of United's league campaign because it's the ground with the on the field oh, not so much no. though eh Carl Let's, yes it, it, how it impressed a... how impressed were you with West Brom eh in sort of I knew what was coming uh, did you so yes very much so Manchester United concede last minute against Everton from a set piece and, and have a frailty on set pieces at the moment I think they've conceded eight goals from set pieces now third highest in the league um, Solskjaer's spoken about how they don't really do the offside trap in defence and while Maguire is good in the air Lindelof can be bullied in the air so a lot of the, if I was an opposition scout and I was talking about you know, Manchester United they'd go oh yeah West Bromwich I'm going to drop a lot of crosses on you watch out for set pieces be solid in the middle first three minutes against West Bromwich they get crosses in Man United aren't solid in the middle there's a goal so um <laughs> I'm not sure if I can be impressed by something that I knew was coming, especially yeah, when it's sure something that hurts me. 83 seconds, that's all Big Sam took to unleash the full might of the baggies on the hapless uh, Red Devils. Daniel, you were impressed, I think. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with Carl that it was it was predictable what was coming and, and I thought it would have been more predictable to Manchester United. Solskjaer spoke this week about having two or three days on the training ground, which was a rare, a rare luxury this season. And yet... Um, it, it it didn't feel like they'd kind of learnt from West Brom's previous games that you you beat West Brom by pulling defenders out of position with kind of quick passing and quick moving and yet he he I thought he would play Van der Beek over Martial uh, I thought I didn't think it needed to I don't think it needed McTominay and Fred I didn't think that West Brom were going to offer enough going forward that in open play that they needed two kind of holding midfielders or pivots in midfield and yeah it just it looked like a team. They looked like a team that kind of expected to just turn up, and West Brom would concede goals. Which, in their defence, West Brom have been pretty good at doing recently. Um, but having got that early goal, they 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 were very happy to bed in, and and the chance that United scored was was out of nothing, and was a pure piece of brilliance that very few players in the Premier League would score. So they'll consider themselves unlucky because I think I looked at the expected goals, and West Brom were dominant on that. You know, they had they. Part of that was the the shot from Diagne, which may have been ruled out for a foul on on Maguire. But even so, they he could have scored two or three goals. Yeah, he yeah. could have scored two or three goals. Um, yeah. So yeah, more steps backwards really for United. Were, were United lucky not to lose then, or do you think that that first goal should never have stood for a foul on Lindelof? I don't know. I think that would have been a little bit harsh. Um, I, I, yeah, I. I, I th- think you don't really want to see goals like that disallowed I no know, but... I, I didn't but I thought I'd say that because you know. <laughs> um I yeah I think it's kind of fine but I mean yeah I having watched them last week against Spurs it was you do know what they're doing they, they work the space to get crosses in and they do that quite effectively so it it was fairly predictable it was kind of the equivalent of a Robin or someone cutting onto their left foot um you, you know it's coming but maybe it's not so easy to stop Another small thing on on the West Brom goal, I think De Gea's position was slightly off as well. I mean, he he scores that header from five, six yards out. And any manager who is expecting a kind of relentless crossing into the box will tell the goalkeeper, you need to step out a bit further here because they're not going to shoot from those areas. They're going to look for a header. So you come out and claim those crosses. And maybe that's just his confidence is slightly dipped recently. Maybe it was just because it was a kind of a clearance and then came straight back out to the right back, uh, the right hand side to cross it. I don't know, but he was really deep and he didn't ever look like he was coming for the ball. All right. That said, though, they were facing, uh, I think what Harry Maguire more or less termed in the post-game, the mighty West Bromwich Albion, who you can't be expecting to come and dominate or in anything anyway like that. I'm not sure what to make of Harry Maguire as well. He had that great chance at the end, that header, to maybe take all three points and Sam Johnson getting a, or a hand to it and just, just tipping it out. Maguire's reaction was quite interesting at that point, throwing himself to the ground and beating the turf in, in, in anguish and, and, and then you know declaring the referees are against us, etc. That's now one point in two games against the bottom two only one victory in their last five games 
for Man United. And they're off to Real Sociedad on Thursday. Only they're not. They're going to Turin to take on Real Sociedad Thursday in the Europa League. That's the David Moyes derby, of course, as it's known uh, in Spain. And uh, well, what about West Brom then? So they are now 12 points from safety while we wait for Newcastle to play. Daniel, they have coming up Burnley, Brighton, Newcastle and Crystal Palace. That's not a bad run of games if you were no, looking to get a bit of momentum. No, and they're the, they're the games they need to take more points from because, as you mentioned at the top of the show, they've got good draws, but they need, them and Fulham are doing exactly the same thing, which is drawing games they really need to win. Um, and... The you know the slight irony of celebrating, understandably celebrating a point against Manchester United is that they end the weekend in a worse position than they started with because of Fulham's win uh, and Burnley's win. So, yeah, I still don't think they have anywhere near enough to stay up, if I'm honest. Um, Diagne looks good though. If they can hold on, I don't know if he'll want to play a full Championship season, but he looks a handful. He looks like he'd be good in the Championship. Man United's only victory in the last five Premier League games was the 9-0 hammering of Southampton one of their run of six consecutive defeats, which continued earlier on on Sunday after they took the lead at home to Wolves. Uh, some cracking goals, we mentioned this, uh, the topic in, in this game, but once again Southampton unable to defend an advantage. Yeah, yeah, this has happened before against Wolves. I was there uh, last year where Southampton were 2-0 up against Wolves at St Mary's at half-time, and then uh, they contrived to lose 3-2 um, and it was again similar in, in what happened where Wolves after not getting much joy in playing orthodox wingers decided to swap the wingers round so Adama Traore moved to the other flank and then basically rather than aimlessly crossing balls into no one decided to play more direct same thing happened from Neto uh, and I think the worrying thing for Southampton right now is again well similar was after Ryan Bertram gave away the penalty he sort of demonstrate with the referee hit the ground there was a large amount of anguish um, and Southampton are in a bit of a bad funk right now where if something small happens and goes wrong you can see players look visibly fatigued and visibly frustrated Nathan Redmond missed two or three chances and you can see him sort of cursing the gods and wondering where his first touch has gone um, they're not in a great moment however they do have around about half a dozen to a dozen players out and for some reason I don't know what football god they annoyed but uh, the VAR and refereeing gods aren't on their side at the moment either. Yeah, um, but the Redmond penalty seemed harsh. Uh, fabulous goals, as we mentioned. Nesso's strike was phenomenal. But the, the, the Ings goal with the, with the build-up, with Redmond sure, backing um, into the defender to block him out. With a little, yeah, something of a pick-and-roll technique for any mm. basketball fans out there. A really good cross from Stuart Armstrong, who is really important to making that team work. So Southampton sort of play a, a quasi 4-3-3 when they're attacking really quickly because of the way Armstrong gets in and supports. Uh, and it was, yeah, it was there. It was very much there for Southampton to win, but they could not because they they like that sort of plan B to when a manager makes an effective in-game change. Um, this has happened twice now with Wolves and Southampton do lose a lot of points from winning positions because Ralph Hassan is so, such an adherent to his plan A you can't possibly see when someone else is producing a plan B that's useful. Oh, mate, keep going. We're almost there. Oh, the legs have gone. Pressing is hard. The weather is so mentally fatigued. All right, lads. Already on the way down, are you? That was a view from the top. <laughs> have Liverpool peaked under Klopp? We're still undecided. And that's why when you create your own bet builder on Leipzig v Liverpool, we'll make it a risk-free £5 bet with money back as cash if it loses. Paddy power. Pre-match online bets only. Minimum two legs. Max cash refund £5. T's and C's apply. 18 plus. BeGambleAware.org. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Okay, Leet uh, involved in a pretty interesting game Sunday afternoon away at the Emirates. Uh, for two, the final score, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang announcing his return with three goals, uh, bouncing another effort off the woodwork. Uh, commentators are busy talking of a Valentine's Day massacre because, of course, it was February the 14th when this took place. Uh, but Arsenal then very nearly made 4-0 look like a dangerous scoreline with their second-half performance, or at least Leeds did with their second-half comeback attempt. It was it was a, a very entertaining uh, match, this one. Well, Arsenal have done that. Before. They're the only Premier League team to have ever thrown away a four-goal lead, so I think there were a lot of hands in mouths, uh, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, 
the the Aubameyang thing. I mean, Arsenal fans have been crying out for this for a while. They've since they've kind of had players who actually create chances with Smith Rowe coming into the team uh, just after Christmas. It's been Lacazette who's played as a central striker. The kind of logic being that he links play that bit better. But Aubameyang, I think for in supporters' eyes, you know, someone like Vardy is the template. You know, um, in his in his thirties getting him into play in kind of smaller areas, but still being really effective. Um, and, and it worked really well today. I mean, Aubameyang, it was by far his best performance uh, of the season. I mean, his goal tally has been pretty modest by his standards uh, and he looked really dangerous. And as you say, he, he he very nearly got a fourth. I mean, Leeds did come back into it. And I, you know, if, if any team traditionally were going to do that throw away that kind of league it would be Arsenal they as I said they have history and you know for this sort of calamity but uh, they kind of rode that out and and by the end they were pretty comfortable and, and could have added a fifth themselves FPL banger us uh, I'm confused are Arsenal good or bad again and once again have they signed William seems like Chelsea sign are good players we signed their bad ones but I, I, I don't know if you want to go back over that old you know, that, oh, reopen that old wound. But just one thing on Willian, I, I find with him, I, I sometimes, if I'm watching a really bad actor, I, I almost think, am I missing something here? Is he doing something that's so subtle and brilliant that me as a player, I can't appreciate that. And I and I who, wonder that who, with Willian, who, who, he, he, who he do can't you, do anything. Who makes you feel like that, Charlie? In, in... <laughs> who? Um, someone like Tom Hiddleston. Oh, really? Like, I, yeah, I think he's so wooden, and I just wonder. Maybe he's got levels I'm not really appreciating. Um, you know, and Willian again, he he can't really create anything, and and he can't even really do the simple things all that well. It's not like he comes on and you're like, oh, fair enough. He's kind of an El Nenny who can just do the simple things really quite neatly. Um, but yeah, maybe there is some some genius there that I I can't quite appreciate. I think I've if you're nothing. if you're yeah, I was gonna say if you're missing it, then pretty much every single Arsenal fan is at least missing it and on your side as well. Um the 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 mad thing is that that they've they've they have had this success with these creative players, and obviously Erdegaard's come in as well. Uh and Saka was brilliant, I thought. I thought he was the game's best player, even though Aubameyang scored a hat trick. Um and then he brings on Willian over someone like Martinelli, and you kind of think you just it's almost like he's deliberately killing the buzz. It's like Martinelli so obviously needs minutes and so obviously fits that kind of new mood that it's almost like, right, just scale it back a little bit. Let's not get too excited. It's almost like a deliberate quelling strategy from Arteta, which I don't understand at all. Mm, Maybe he's holding Martinelli back for Thursday's trip to Italy. They're in Rome. Taking on Benfica in the Europa League, another of those fixtures with the away leg held in an entirely random third country and then they're at home to Man City actually on Sunday so that'll be extremely entertaining that will be quite a test FBL banger of whether Arsenal are good or bad anymore uh, let's talk about Man City and what they did this weekend against Arsenal's neighbours next looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone luckily with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Here's a Gundogan again. Is he going to get another one here? He is, oh! he is, he is. The goal-laden German, Ilkay Gundogan, has wrapped up the win here, surely. Yep, never mind the modern penalties. That third Man City goal, pretty much summing the afternoon up at the Etihad on Saturday. Gundogan on fire, Spurs face-planting in the East Manchester turf. Man City there with their 11th straight win in the league, 16th in all competitions. They haven't trailed for even a second for any of their last 15 Premier League games. And they're seven points clear now and they're utterly dominant. Woof. Mm. Yeah, they really are. The only team to have led against them in their last 23 matches are League 2 Cheltenham Town, uh, which is odd. And yeah, they were utterly dominant. I mean, we've praised City a lot again. I think they were kind of just in kind of get the job done mode here. I think they realised that 
pretty early on that Spurs weren't even going to really try and attack them. So as long as they didn't throw too many men forward and let, you know, there was a moment in the first half where Kane beat two players and then suddenly realised he had like three more to get past just to create a chance. And it was just never going to happen because City moves so fast that when they play like that against a pretty static defence, it is like they've got two or three extra players because every time you look at the movement, there's another player in a different position, which meant they could do that and still leave four players back or five players back and Spurs just couldn't counter against that. Yeah, I mean, Spurs actually started reasonably well, I thought. You know, they had that breakaway that ended with Kane winning the free kick and he hits the post. Um but yeah, they they very quickly ran out of ideas and ran out of steam. I and mean, we talked about Everton having, you know, looking a bit leggy after that midweek game. I think the same could be said of Tottenham. But yeah, you know, fr- from the City side, totally, it was very professional. It was it was clinical. They they did what they needed to, and you know, had the game wrapped up with what half an hour to spare or something. So you know, I, I spoke about this a couple of weeks ago that they maybe had a slightly gentle uh, run. Uh, when they won all these games, well, <laughs> since then they've uh, beaten Liverpool, beaten Spurs and done it pretty comprehensively. So, yes, City are good. Mm. Even without the likes of Aguero and Kevin De Bruyne, although Gundogan uh, complaining of a groin issue in the course of this game, and I'm not sure what that means for his uh, participation in their next few fixtures. Everton coming up midweek and then Arsenal, as we've mentioned, at, at the weekend. As for Spurs, Charlie, loads of people writing in asking about Mourinho's future. Warren Margolis, how close are we to Mu getting the sack? Jimbo says, has Jose brought himself time, bought himself time by getting into a final? Uh, I would ask, is the barbers being shut the only thing that's separating <laughs> us from the, the Mu buzz cut? <laughs> yeah, they're going to war. Um... I don't think he's particularly close yet to to the point of being sacked. I mean, Daniel Levy is a is a really big fan of his. I mean, you know, people I've spoken to about this say, you know, he's he's kind of in awe of Mourinho, and I think we all, you know, anyone who watched the uh, Amazon Prime documentary saw that kind of Brent Finchy dynamic. So I, I don't think he's going anywhere anytime soon. The the League Cup final definitely is a nice thing to have in his back pocket and I was talking about it with with some colleagues at the time that it's quite good for him that that final was moved till what the end of April rather than the end of February because it does um, add to that I mean I think from you know from from, um, the chairman's point of view they are still in the Europa League which obviously is a ticket back to um, the Champions League potentially they have that League Cup final they're not that I mean they're four points off Liverpool who are fourth with a game in hand so I know that the direction of travel looks awful and the performances have been awful and they're on a terrible run but I um, I think that's probably where Levy's head would be at right now I know that's maybe not what Tottenham supporters want to hear and this result on Saturday, although the performance was really limp and totally uninspiring, it's it, you know losing to City is not a disgrace. You, you know, we talk about sure. the winning no. run they're on. Uh, absolutely, it's just that the only teams that Spurs have beaten since mid-December, so two months now, are the bottom two and Leeds, who've just been promoted. So I mean, it's it's not great. No, and and that's not to you know I'm not you know, to say that defending Mourinho necessarily, but I think that's just probably where. You know, Levy's perspective is, but yeah, the, the form has been terrible, and it's it's really interesting looking at how these the when Spurs beat City in that game in November and were top and genuinely looked like being title challengers. How much they've fallen off then, and how much City have come back into it. But yeah, the moment for Spurs, it's it's so uninspiring. Um, you know that, and, and talking to fans as well. You know, just so disillusioned with it. You know, talking to people who are saying they've they've almost stopped watching because they find the football so uninspiring. Um, that it's, ba- you know, the approach seems to be so negative and, you know, which to be fair to Mourinho, I think he's actually tried the last couple of games to be a bit more positive and, you know, they, they went with a, an out-and-out, out, you know, 4 2 three, one. It, it, You know, it wasn't like they're part of the bus or anything. Um, but they just look basically does really seem to be get the ball to Kane, hope he makes something happen. And, and the fact is as well, Son's been out of form. So they really are so reliant on Kane at the moment and it's it's just not really fun, really. I mean, I, I, I tweeted about it on on Sunday morning, but the the the, the kind of lack of in, attacking intent is 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 obviously becoming a huge issue. Um, there's there's there have been 233 games this season in the Premier League, so 466 teams 
having a go. And on only 12 occasions as a team had six or fewer touches in the opposition box in those 466 goes. And Tottenham account for three of those 12, which... The others are, you know, it's the obvious ones. It's West Brom, it's Fulham, it's Sheffield United, it's Newcastle. Uh, Wolves, I think, are in there and so are Southampton. But Tottenham are the only team in the top half, I think, who are in there. So, you know, the, Mourinho's thing is is either been to say, well, I'm not telling them to play like that. Um, you know, I have asked for more. So that's either a communication issue or he's fibbing and he hasn't asked them to play like that, and in which case the players probably aren't happy about it. But even if he has... like. It's clearly not working doing that. So something's there's a disconnect somewhere. Mm. One other question which has come in regarding people's futures at Spurs, meanwhile, uh, Charlie, is from Sam. He says, is it time for Spurs to replace Loris? Or is it still worth holding on to him for another season or so? Who's out there? Have the club <laughs> made any inquiries? I mean, I, I don't think it's at that stage yet. Loris is still... Um, the club captain. I think his his contract expires not this summer, the one after. So I don't think it's it's yet there, but I know people are starting to think that, that that is a position they really, really need to strengthen. I mean, there, some supporters have been sceptical about Lloris more or less since around that uh, the World Cup time when he, you know, he made the error in that final and then uh, he came back and had some issues off the pitch and, you know, had definitely had a rick uh, in him. So I, I think it's one that they'll they'll have to look at. Um, at the end of the season unless of course they think that Joe Hart hit the the current number two is the solution but somehow I don't see that happening mm. alright then well Spurs are also in action Thursday they are taking on Wolfsburger Austrian side a game which will be taking place in Budapest at the Pushkas Arena uh, City anyway with that win seven points clear with the game in hand second and third are Man United and Leicester separated by goal difference and then You've got Liverpool in fourth, one of six sides battling over that last Champions League spot. Chelsea are there, West Ham are there, Everton, Villa and Spurs are in there. All those sides have a game in hand, at least one game in hand, over Liverpool. Crikey, what a predicament. Liverpool's latest result, of course, was the 3-1 defeat at the King Power. What a turnaround here. Liverpool had dominated the game, took the lead with a quite magnificent assist from Bobby Firmino for uh, Mo Salah in the 67th minute. I left the room at this point. How many did they win by? <laughs> Negative two. Minus two, yeah. <laughs> what was behind Leicester's comeback? Wilfred Ndidi, really. Just sort of recognising the uh, the idea ball that Thiago tries to play. Um, I think that uh, some Nigerian football fans made the joke that Thiago, who plays a lot of idea balls, can't get past Wilfred Ndidi, who grew up in Lagos, which is a very, like, oh yeah, this is how Nigerian football works. Um, Can you- an, an idea ball is a ball, is like a no-look pass or a ball that is, uh, you apply it with spin or whatnot. It's a ball that could reasonably, if it doesn't work, you go, yeah, right. but the idea was good. And if it does uh, okay. work, you go, oh, I meant it. Right. Um, it's very, it, people who play football in Nigeria know what it is. Okay. Um, so that was that was fun. Just indeed getting realizing what Tiago was going to do before Tiago did it, and slowly acclimatizing and growing to the game, and understanding that. And once you did that, you stopped their deepest line midfielder, which allowed more space for for Harvey Barnes to do his great work, from Madison to do what he needed to do. It was. I don't want to portray this game as very much a. Uh, there was a Liverpool connect collapse, like a very pronounced twenty minute period where nothing went well for Liverpool, but also. That was because Leicester grew into that game slowly, had a very good game plan. Their diamond that um, James Madison explained after the end of the game was really interesting about how you, if you play a diamond against Liverpool, there's extra space because you can get them in central areas, which I thought were interesting. And yeah, I think it was just a case of it got to the 65th to the 70th minute, Leicester figured out what to do and then just did it quickly. All right. Because Liverpool had had a, a collapse at around the same point of the previous week's game against well, Man City, which can happen. But Madison mentioned the diamond and the way that the gaffer or the boss, I can't remember how he referenced Brendan Rodgers, had, had turned the game around for them. Um, what is it? I mean, in a broader sense, he's got them up kind of just off second place on goal difference. And this despite a, a series of pretty tough uh, injuries that, that they themselves have had and with a squad that I don't think really measures up to the teams that they're competing against. Uh, w- what is the Rodgers superpower? What is it that, it, w- what's his kind of, what is, what's, what's his kind of trump card strength? You know when they say great artists steal? Mm-hmm. 
No, I think that's Rodgers. He's, uh, he's very good at looking left and right, seeing what other football managers and other football clubs are doing at the top level and replicating that very well to himself. So uh, you've seen two or three football clubs at the start of this COVID season experiment with the diamond. Manchester United used it a little bit to pull, with Paul Pogba when he was in the side as well. And I think Brendan Rodgers looked at teams using a diamond in Europe and whatnot and going, right, this is a really interesting way to beat some of the more expansive teams that want to play with a high line. I love PSG, I love Bayern Munich, um, to a slightly lesser degree, Borussia Dortmund. And I think he, he saw that, he adapted that. He has a fantastic number six in Wilfred Ndidi, which means he's got a good platform to do whatever he wants going forwards and backwards. Um, so sometimes you see Leicester do you know, Leicester have done a Man City to Man City. They've done a Manchester United to Manchester United. They're very good at replicating high bits of football to uh, to their opponents. And I think what you saw was Leicester doing a Liverpool flurry to Liverpool. I mean, he's really tactically flexible. That's always been Rodgers' kind of biggest asset. And I think that's why he was viewed with suspicion by a lot of people because he would talk quite engagingly, I thought, about that, um, which, you know, maybe we haven't always wanted from from British managers. I think people thought, oh, he's getting, you know, ideas above his station. But you remember at Liverpool, I mean, he came in from Swansea where he played a very possession-based game and then he implemented that at Liverpool in the first season. Kind of worked. And then he really threw that out the window to an extent in that season where they nearly won the league and they played far more reactively on the counter and incredibly effectively. And then in his third season, which wasn't actually all that successful, but he switched to a three at the back uh, around the start of the year. And they went on this this amazing run that was ended then when United beat them in that game where Gerrard got sent off. But at that time, it really looked like he'd kind of done it again. So I think it's that... Uh, yeah, that flexibility and and that willingness to change and not just be, you know, Carl mentioned Hassan Hootel having, you know, being very much a plan A kind of coach. We've seen then someone like Rogers uh, is the opposite and, and happy and humble enough. I know people people think he's very arrogant. I, I don't think that at all personally, but, uh, you know, humble enough to, to change a system when it's not working. They also have a really, really good team spirit. I'd say of... of, of of the Premier League squads of what you kind of hear about them, there's probably only Aston Villa, I think, that have that kind of full togetherness. And and I don't think that's, you know, I don't think that's a, a fluke because if you, if you talked about that, that Rodgers-Liverpool team, the thing was is that it felt like they were all from very kind of separate parts. You know, they've got a central defender they signed from France. They've got Ricardo Pereira and Thielemans who've kind of got that Porto base they've got young English players as well they've got Jamie Vardy who's this kind of Benjamin Button English striker and there's a lot of different component parts and it's quite hard to kind of marry all that into a great team spirit but that's what Rodgers does seem to do very well whether it's because he he takes on some of that pressure himself which is his personality or or what he's he, he does it very well are they going to finish above United do you think Carl yes Okay. No. Pay attention to the way I said that. <laughs> right. Well, both United and Leicester are currently six points clear. Because of that result of Liverpool, who are themselves 13 points behind Man City and the title defence is now officially over. They've only scored three goals in seven. Three goals in seven have Liverpool. They've got a keeper who's falling apart, a frank front line that's not scoring. And next up... They got a trip to Budapest to take on high-flying RB Leipzig. Woof. Let's get a quick word on the prospects for Liverpool in that game from our friend Raphael Honigstein. You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power. Rafa, hello. Hello, James. RB Leipzig, of course, we saw reaching the semi-finals of the Champions League last year and then more recently coming through a very tough group uh, Carl, you'll remember this, with uh, Man United and PSG. And, uh, of course, uh, terrible at Old Trafford, Leipzig, or at least the result was, but then 3-2 winners at home. They were kind of quite an inconsistent side back at that point, Rafa, but of late they become actually pretty relentless. They're very consistent. They have the best uh, defence in the league by quite quite a margin. They don't score quite as many goals as Bayern, but then very few teams do. And I think what they're lacking is a little bit of extraordinary quality up front that, that a team like Bayern have, or or indeed Liverpool. They work very hard for their goals. Their goals tend to come from midfield or they come from Angelino. They don't come from a recognised number nine or even um, you know a hybrid striker like Werner 
um, was last season who was so influential. Uh, the two players, the two big players that uh, Leipzig have brought in to make a difference up front have not been a factor so far. Dominic Soboslai hasn't kicked the ball since moving from Salzburg in the winter, still injured. And Solot is, is Sir not a lot uh, right now, uh, not scoring a lot of goals and not really doing a lot um, up front. So I think Leipzig feel as if they have a better chance now against Liverpool than maybe they would have had a few months ago due to Liverpool's loss of form and loss of rhythm. But you'd still, over two legs, think that Liverpool would probably find a way of sneaking through. Really? This Liverpool? Yeah, I don't think Liverpool have been playing quite as badly as as the results suggest. I think in many ways they are actually putting out comparable performances, um, just numbers-wise. It's just that... Last year they would win these games, they would edge these games. This year they they lose narrowly. I'm not really talking so much, of course, about the last two where they lost heavily and collapsed, but the, the games before. And I don't know, I might be wrong, but you think that maybe the fact that the league is going to be no longer a viable target as far as defending the title is concerned, the Champions League might become even more important for Liverpool and maybe some of these performances that haven't really been up to scratch I'm looking at the fullbacks for example maybe they can raise their game ever ever so much ever by by ever slightly um, a few percentage points that might make the difference so I, I still think Liverpool will will squeeze through okay they do have a terrible record on the road I'm not sure what the neutral venue will will mean for that but it's in the last two years they've lost seven away games in the Champions League so of course, there will be the return leg at, at Anfield. Mm. And I think they're conscious of that because they were very reluctant to trade their home advantage in the second leg. Because you might have just think, you know, what's the difference really? Whether you play your game in an empty stadium first or second. But I think because their away record is quite poor, they wanted desperately to have that second leg at home. Even if it's just only confers a small advantage, they I think they understand that uh, they might need that. Okay. Rafa, since we have you on, just briefly on Klopp and the kind of downward trajectory that Liverpool are experiencing at the moment, what what mileage is there in the comparisons with his last year at uh, Borussia Dortmund? I don't think there is a lot really um, as far as parallels are concerned. The, the starting point for both clubs is so different in terms of the team being together you know, no one's picked off the best Liverpool players of the last two years. They haven't gone to direct rivals. Um, Klopp hasn't been fighting this battle just of, you know, maintaining the, the standards of the squad. The squad has been strengthened. Injuries, yes, that was that was an issue. A, a certain staleness, yes, that was an issue. But, I mean, Liverpool are on a completely different and miles better place than, than Dortmund were, who at one stage looked as if they might get relegated I don't think Liverpool are in quite as much danger just yet, so I don't think I don't think it's really um, directly comparable. I think Liverpool, even with all their problems, will probably play a decent season, finishing in the top four. Of course, it doesn't compare to the last two seasons, but I don't think it's going to be a catastrophe. Raphael Honigstein. Mm. Producer Ben, that's right, that producer Ben, who's stepping in uh, today, uh, just made an interesting point. Liverpool have still yet to have their victory parade uh, from last season's Premier League title. By the time they get to have it, it could be the world's saddest victory parade, no? Yeah, I also feel really bad for Sheffield United fans. The last time they've seen their team without, you know, at Bramwell Lane, they were a good Premier League side and then the next time they'll probably get to see him next at Bramall 9 it's going to be in the championship again oh, that yeah. sort of Covid has taken so many small and big joys from so many people I'm a bit sad now it's, it's I think it's West Brom and potentially Fulham who I feel most sorry for whose fans might go the whole season without seeing their team and then just kind of go back as if like did I just dream that or was that happening or yeah that's pretty uh, they have both got recent Premier League experience at least but yeah that's a sad thing it would have been worse for say Leeds fans if they'd have got promoted and then gone down and just been back when they'd started at least Brighton fans barely have missed a home win 
I mean, they're, they're <laughs> yeah, <ones>. <laughs> <laughs> I was just, I was just trying to think of uh, are there any positives, and that that was about as uh, positive as I could get. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. 15th of February, big day in football history, by the way, listener. It's seven years to the day since that 15th of February back on uh, 2014 that Fulham brought in a brand new manager called Felix Magath. Yeah who brought bread and cheese to the Premier League treatment table. Do you remember that? Yeah, cheese with maggots, yeah. Yes, exactly, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, 20, 2003, Fergie Dex Bex. That happened on the 15th of uh, February after Arsenal beat Man United 2-0 in the FA Cup at Old Trafford. Uh, and also on the 15th of February, but a little bit longer ago, the first ever manager fired in the Premier League, was uh, given his notice. Do you know who that was? Can you name the manager? Was it Ch- a Chelsea manager? Yeah, it was. Ooh. It was Ian Porterfield. Butterfield? Porterfield, Porter. that's it, yeah. Boom. Yeah. And I, I, rem- I remember that on the Premier League years of that season, they do. What, it, what track of. did they play? Uh, I don't remember the track, but it's a kind of P45 motif is, right. is, how, is how it's done. Okay, because I think number one at the time was uh, two unlimited with no limits, but there were very much for Ken Bates at Chelsea after 12 games without a win. Ian Porterfield was uh, shown the door. Crikey. If you can answer questions like that, listener, you'd probably want to know that uh, we've got all these 31 football quizzes happening around February and March uh, with The Athletic, uh, running in partnership with Prostate Cancer UK. And if you'd like to find out more about that, the place to head is theathletic.com slash PCUK. Mm. Now, Saturday the 13th of February 2021 saw Brighton drawing 0-0 with Villa with Emmy Martinez in extraordinary form. What were the numbers? Brighton had 26 shots in total, more than they've ever managed before in a Premier League match. But uh, Martinez... Uh, more than a match for them. The other game, meanwhile, did see goals. Burnley winning 3-0 at Palace. In fact, the Clarets with this scored 20% of all the goals they've scored in this entire season in this one trip to Selhurst Park. Extraordinary. And Sean Dyche, going back to this business of cup or league, he, said, he, he was explaining, that's why I had rested players midweek in the cup and everyone got upset because we got knocked out by Bournemouth. Uh, I mean, we can talk about Palace and the fact that they're all, what, D-mob happy, are they? Dominic Pfeiffer was explained they got 12 players out of contract. The manager probably on his way at the end of the season. Everyone's just kind of twiddling thumbs and pocketing the stationery. But but what about Burnley? Three goals. Yeah, they, they've they started scoring goals. They, they were, on, I think, January the 17th, they were on course to score 20 league goals, which should have been the lowest ever by a top-flight team in England. Um, and since then, they've scored... Three against Villa and three against Palace and three against Fulham in the Cup and scored against Liverpool. And yeah, they're they're doing what Burnley do, which is just as I think, Okay, now they're in trouble. Now this time they're in trouble. They go and win a few games and Sean Dice goes, I don't know what you were worried about. We're always going to do that because we always do it. And they will be in the Premier League again next year, which we, we shouldn't take for granted because they are still operating on the kind of shoestring budgets, basically, that... With a little bit of loosening, but pretty much operating on the same budgets as they did when they got promoted. So, so fair play to them for that. So the takeover hasn't made any material difference yet, or well, to, depending to on prospects. depending on what you read, uh, I think it's fair to say that that uh, I'll be careful what I say, but I will say I don't think that takeover is going to lead to them spending a hundred million pounds on new players this summer. Uh, I don't think it's that kind of takeover. All right, as long as they hang on to Matt Loughton, eh? Carl, quite the goal, wasn't it? It was yes, yes. This is this is the the very they scored three goals in the most Burnley fashion, sort of crosses, set pieces, and then one goal that makes you go, "How on earth have you done that?" Because the most Burnley goal of all is the goal that you don't expect Burnley to score. 
I, yeah. They scored one against Everton a few years ago, didn't they? Where they passed it for minutes on end, and it was kind of like, see, Burnley do play properly. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. But, but, but just this time on, last year, they're doing with, a looky likey. Uh, yeah, this, <laughs> I think on on the fifteenth, twenty twenty, I watched them play Southampton and Vieira just scored a volley that was astonishing, really. Um, yeah, credit to Sean Dyche. He always finds a way to do this. This team are they have a, a learned resilience to them, and there is a faith that their plans will come good at some point in the season. And at a time where you're watching loads of other Premier League football players look visibly fatigued and frustrated, and at a time where you can see football players visibly lose faith in plans, I think this week I saw two or three players look left, look right, and maybe at the start of the season they would have gone for the traditional passing option, decided to carry it maybe an extra yard forward because they don't trust their teammates as much as they used to. Uh, But... Um, I saw two or three from Eric Lamella where I did not believe Eric Lamella wanted to release the ball when he should have. Um, and I think Nathan Redmond sometimes has a, uh, a, a urge to carry the ball further. And um, also Marcus Rashford has this very fun thing where he enjoys working himself into good goal scoring opportunities and then unfortunately takes an extra touch and works himself out of a good goal scoring opportunity. And I think that comes from mental fatigue. I think that's just, you know, you get tired and you forget the processes. Whereas Burnley, for some reason understand that this process will come good if you just keep doing it long enough and lo and behold now they've started scoring goals indeed palace as otto silvers points out have now conceded in the second minute the third minute and now in the fifth minute alex cooney as well raising the question about the 14 is it players out of contract in the summer and roy hodgson very possibly or probably on on his way uh, how much of a transition this is. We actually had Dom speaking about this uh, at some length on on, uh, on Thursday, and he felt a lot more positive about it than the you know the situation might might lead you to to think because it's a, quite an opportunity for them to to uh, you know start again from if not scratch then a pretty f- fresh uh, canvas. Two games coming up Monday evening, listener. Uh, you are excited as am I that Chelsea are hosting Newcastle again. And also to see what happens when West Ham and Sheffield United go at it. Uh, did you know that coming into this weekend's fixtures, only Man City had won more Premier League points than West Ham so far in 2021? Mm. Is that going to continue against the Blades, do you think? Quite probably. Uh, Mikel Antonio's a, a doubt and the only the only kind of... Uh, well, the, there's always one thing that West Ham fans have to worry about because being a football fan dictates that and they are worried about the lack of backup to, to Mikel Antonio. As I've got a friend who's a West Ham fan, he said, we, we are kind of putting all our eggs in a in a, as our central striker as a right winger slash right wing back whose hamstrings have been troubled basically his whole career. So, yeah, that does seem a little bit of a false move. Um but no, I think they probably will win. They've, they, I really like the way they play. They've got they 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 play in the image of of David Moyes as a manager, which is the kind of grit through midfield. And you know, it's not that they aren't talented players. It's just that they aren't just based purely on potential talent. Which when they had Felipe Anderson and Yarmolenko starting every week, and even Lanzini's a bit like that, and Haller. Now it's it's solid as a rock, and it's solid as a rock without. Jalings is this is the sprinkle of stardust now, yeah, and 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 bizarrely they're also really good to watch. I slightly fancy Sheffield United to get something from that game. It, it just feels in the kind of rhythm of the season that would sort of make sense in a weird way, kind of like Fulham beating Everton tonight, right? And West Brom getting that point against Man United. Well, we'll see. Uh, one of those games is before the other, I guess, on Monday evening. But I'm I'm not sure which way round it is. West Ham West first, Ham so they can go fourth if they win. Ooh, crikey. That would be amazing. What a season. What a season. Anyway, we'll look back at how that game goes. Of course, in Thursday's show, uh, before we finish up in today's edition, we're going to be having a look at one or two of the other Champions League highlights and that kind of thing that are on the way this midweek. Before that, though, odds from our friend Lee Price of Paddy Power. Hello, listeners. It's award season and... While the Golden Globes are honour the best of American television, I thought we could celebrate the best of British TV, the Premier League. The best comedy award probably has to go to Tottenham, who are 2-5 to five to beat Wolfsburg in the Europa League on Thursday night, but a victory for the Austrian side would cement Spurs in this category. 
The best drama must be the poison chalice of top spot, with Man City the only team able to handle its danger without capitulating. They're 4-11 to to win Everton on Wednesday night. The best supporting actor gone could yet turn out to be Thomas Tuchel, who, having replaced leading man Frank Lampard, has seen the table conspire to give his Chelsea team a shot at the top four. They're 1-5 to to beat Newcastle tonight, and 5-6 to to qualify for the Champions League. God knows. The best original score won't be Southampton 7-0 lost to Man United, get a new job in guys, but the best foreign language film has to be VAR, probably, if we knew what the hell was going on. David Moyes might be in the mix of best director. His West Ham team are odds-on at 8-11 to beat Sheffield United and leap into the top four tonight. And what's that? I deserve an honorary award for this segment. You're too kind. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. Now, this week there's European competition. Uh, Spurs away against Wolfsburger. Leicester against Slavia Prague. Man United, Real Sociedad away. So Real Sociedad, Man United. Arsenal are against Benfica. That one is in Rome. And Rangers take on Antwerp. Possibly in Antwerp, actually. I'm not sure. In the Champions League, four games. RB Leipzig against Liverpool, which we mentioned. On the Wednesday, you've got Sevilla against Dortmund. That'll be huge. As will Porto against Juve, who got beaten by Napoli on Saturday. And you've also got the huge clash on Tuesday between Barcelona and Paris Saint-Germain. Wow, this could be Messi's last ever Champions League tie for Barcelona. Woo! Yeah, I'm, I mean, I know why we're doing two-legged ties. I know, right. money, yep. gesture, Seymour Skinner's from Simpsons. <laughs> but also, why are we not doing single elimination right now for COVID? At some point, someone should have gone, hang on, neutral venues for this but also not neutral venue or something. Should we just do what we did last time? Right. That's, like, that's, just, that's my grievance. And just, I just pause need to get the competition and then find a suitable place and time to get it all. No, well, not, I don't even think necessarily it has to be paused, but surely you could have just picked a, you could have just decided to do some form of, if you are going to do neutral venues, surely it would be make more sense to do neutral venues in a single elimination game rather than continue this uh, money spinning facade that we're all partaking in because we're all quite bored. Mm. And it, I mean, it would have taken some forward planning, which isn't necessarily UEFA's forte around COVID-19. But if you just remove the six game weeks of last 16 and um, quarterfinals and semifinals, you could have got domestic leagues to have finished their seasons earlier. And we could have had that mini tournament again in early May. It would have been brilliant. Well, I'm, I'm quite happy about them having these two-legged games. I do admit that it's pretty absurd that Liverpool are going to Budapest and... Uh, I can't remember who else is heading there. I think Spurs are as well for, for their games. It does seem a bizarre and, and very un- unsanitary arrangement with the current uh, climate. However, the original plan for this to happen uh, didn't seem that mad until it became impossible for English clubs to go to Germany because of their their lockdown. So I, I guess that's the kind of X factor. But I'm pretty glad that we're going to get two, two Barcelona against Paris Saint-Germain games. I mean... You know, uh, I know what you're saying. All this flying around is not good, but we haven't ha- we haven't got enough footballers. What you're saying, James? We need more football. <laughs> well, I mean, It'd be nice to finally have some midweek football. <laughs> I take your point, but you know, this is this is bustling a PSG. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, yeah. Although Neymar won't be there, you know. I mean, who would have who would have thought that Pochettino versus Koeman? The former Southampton manager, yeah, Derby. the former Saints. I was just going to have a look there at like the the last time they played each other at Spurs Everton when Koeman was probably just about to be sacked, and it seems mad that they're now going to be playing for a uh, place in the Champions League quarterfinals at those clubs. Well, if that's the kind of madness that you enjoy, listener, you'll be excited to know that we'll be delving into the midweek European fixtures in depth in Tuesday's edition of the Totally Football Show with Rafa. Back again, James Horncastle, Alvaro Romeo, and of course, Julian Laurent, who will be explaining why Neymar isn't around this time uh, for Paris Saint-Germain's last 16 clash. Yeah, Neymar has that extraordinary record, doesn't he, of missing the last 16 pretty much every year, which which kind of makes him the Brazilian Kevin Nolan. Um, Nolan had this extraordinary record of always absenting himself uh, from the Boxing Day fixtures. I think it was something like five seasons in a row, which raised a few eyebrows, let's put it that way. 
Charlie, thank you so much for that and all your other contributions today. Daniel, you as well. Uh, Carl and special guest producer, old school Ben Green. Listener, thank you for being with us right to the end. And we'll be back on Tuesday, so do join us then for now. From all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Keep up to date with everything totally at thetotallyfootballshow.com and follow us at The Totally Show on Twitter and Insta. Check out all of the Athletic's football podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on the Athletic app. The Totally Football Show is a Muddy Knees Media production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.